Thank you so much to Dana and the Bell Choir. That was magnificent. Friends, this morning we continue, as Jeff said, in our series on Transformed Heart. And we realize it seems like we have hidden a stewardship series in a series on a transformed heart. That's because that's what we've done. As we, as we prayed and, and planned and thought ahead, understanding that this is stewardship season in the life of the church, we thought, well, the easy thing for us to do would be what we typically do in the stewardship season. That is to focus on the pillars of stewardship and talk about the giving of our time, of our talent, and of our treasure. But it felt a little bit like in doing that, uh, we wouldn't be dissimilar from the way many of us have been as parents when, you know, we ask our children to do something and they ask, well, why should we do that thing? And we simply say, what? Because I said so, right? If you have spent any time in the church, if you have grown up in the church, then you understand that those pillars of stewardship are something that we should live into as God's people. However, we also understand as, as Ronnie so beautifully and, and humbly shared, that that can be difficult for us to do. It can be difficult for us to live open-handedly with our time and with our talent and with our treasure. So we wanted to dig a little bit deeper and try to answer that question of why. Why would we do those things? Why would we live generously? Why would we seek to take what we have worked so hard to earn or a gift that we have worked so hard to perfect in our lives and hold that with an open hand and ask God, would you use this in the way that you feel best? We would do that because our hearts are being transformed and becoming like the heart of Jesus. And we began last week in looking at the heart of Jesus because we felt like if we're going to talk about the heart and talk about the transformed heart, then we better begin with the heart that we are called and invited to emulate. And, and the one in whom, whose heart we are, we are being molded into in the heart of Christ. And so we looked at the end of Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 28 through 30, where Jesus makes this great invitation, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And if you are a parent, have been a parent, if you are a grandparent, if you spend time in your life responsible for anyone other than yourself, then that is a beautiful invitation. Come to me all who are weary. Yep. Where, come where? Sign me up. And so often we hear that invitation to come and rest. And it may be an invitation. Maybe for you it's permission to go home and take a nap this afternoon. But what we come to learn that it's not just an invitation to cease. It's actually an invitation to live differently. In the way that we submit to Jesus and in the way that we live in relationship to the world. So there's, there's something that Jesus asks of us in that. But it's, it's rest from the pressures of what the world would place on us and finding an identity in, in what the world says is important. Instead, finding our identity and our hope in Christ and allowing him to give us freedom in that. But so often, that, that invitation to rest is so important that we miss out on what is, I believe, a beautiful piece of that statement that Jesus makes. Because in that, he describes his own heart. It's the only place that we see in the New Testament where Jesus describes his own heart. I am gentle and humble. Some translations say I am gentle and lowly. 
So Jesus, the one who is resplendent in his glory, the one whose name is above every name, the one um, in, in whom all of creation will come to submit to one day. Jesus, in that we find, is approachable and accessible. And that's good news if we have ever felt like we don't measure up. If we have ever been led to feel like life with God is only a life of following the rules and then become discouraged and dejected when we can't do that. That invitation of Jesus is an invitation that is full of hope because he is accessible, he is approachable, and invites us to come. We also learn something in that passage about the heart. What Jesus is describing is not his emotion, which is how we tend to think of the heart. When we talk about the heart, we say, oh, I love something, but if we're not careful, we might have an emotional response to a slice of pizza in the same way that we have an emotional response to the person to whom we're married. And if your spouse finds out that you might feel the same way about a slice of pizza that you feel about them, then there's, there's probably a conversation that needs to be had. So it's not emotion that Jesus is talking about there. It's helpful for us to have a biblical understanding of, of the heart. When we see the word heart or hear Jesus talk about his heart in Scripture, what we are seeing is something that describes the very center, the very core of who you are. One author said it's speaking of the thing that gets us out of bed in the morning and what we daydream about when we drift off to sleep. It is the motivating headquarters of our lives. It's not simply part of who we are. It is the center of who we are. It's what defines and directs us. That's important for us to to hold on to. One, as we consider this, this invitation that Jesus makes to his accessible heart. But two, as we get into our our passage this morning. Because as we will find, Jesus is playing for keeps, as Jesus does. He wants all of us. He wants our hearts. He wants the core of who we are, the thing that defines us. Because he knows that if, if our offering to him begins with the heart, then everything else in our lives flows out of that. And so we find that in in what is part of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is willing to step on some toes. I I like to tell our our friends, our our worshiping family in Crossroads, that if you you hear something that is convicting to you and you find yourself getting frustrated, don't get frustrated with Vern. That's the Holy Spirit that's convicting you. It's not me. Take it up with the Lord. But in this morning's passage, Jesus is saying some hard things. But he's doing so from a place that is inviting and a place that is accessible and a place that is approachable. And if we hear some of these things and we find ourselves challenged in a way that is frustrating or that might leave us feeling like, gosh, I'm, there it is again, that, that creeping feeling of not measuring up. It's not that Jesus is after our things. Jesus instead is after our hearts. Let's look at Our scripture for this morning, Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 19. Friends, I like to invite our worshiping family in Crossroads, if you are able, if you feel led, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? These words that Matthew records from Jesus, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Remember that if we were to take a, a kind of a higher elevation view of this passage, we would find that this is situated in what we understand in Matthew's gospel as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This follows John's int- John the Baptist's entrance into the, the picture where, where people are going in droves out to the wilderness by the Jordan to see this man John. And, and maybe some of them are going because he, because he is a visual spectacle. He's described as dressing in clothes made of camel hair and eating locusts and wild honey. And I think if I heard there was someone like that around, I would either go to see them or I would avoid it like the plague. But maybe he's a little bit like a train wreck, like you know you shouldn't look at it, but you can't help because you want to see what's going on. But as people are approaching, John is, is saying some what sounds like really harsh words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then following Jesus' baptism, he will take up those same words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that word repent simply is an invitation to turn in a new direction. Out of Jesus' mouth, maybe those words don't land at the end of a pointing finger, but as someone who comes alongside us, pointing the way to go. And to hear Jesus say that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is to hear him say one thing has drawn close to another. The kingdom of heaven is drawn near or drawn alongside or close to the kingdom of this world. And then everything that Jesus would say in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount is a description, a teaching on what it looks like for us to live as citizens of this kingdom. And it's going to look different than what it looks like to live as citizens of this world. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone asks asks you to go with them one mile, go with them two miles. If someone asks you to borrow something, give them the, the cloak off of your back. The light that is within you, don't hide it. Put it on display for all to see. Jesus is showing us what it looks like to live as citizens of his kingdom because he knows that what he is up against, what we have dealt with, what has plagued us from the very beginning, is that we are a people who work hard to establish our own little kingdoms in this world and to establish ourselves as the sovereign of those kingdoms. If you have ever spent time around small children, you know that this is true. From a young age, we watch children try to establish themselves as sovereigns over their own little kingdoms. Right? The moment that the word no begins to be understood and uttered in a house, you are up against a small but very ferocious little kingdom. And we deal with that the rest of our lives. And as followers of Christ, that's probably the greatest tension in which we live. Between living lives that are submitted and surrendered to the heart of Jesus and the goodness of God and lives that are so concerned with what we have and what we can do and what, how we might define ourselves that, that we find that our, our little kingdoms are in, in tension or in conflict with God's kingdom. And so Jesus is coming to show us a new way. 
It's important for us to understand as we look at this passage out of the gate what Jesus is not saying. Because this is one of those places in Scripture that can be misused. Jesus is not saying that treasure and possession are bad. There's nothing inherently wrong with us having treasure, with us having possession, with us having wealth. Paul will pick up this idea in his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, he goes on to say, eager for more or eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The pressure that this world puts on us to achieve and to gain and to work for and to possess and to have is so great that we often find ourselves lost to that pressure. Jesus is not saying that those things in and of themselves are inherently wrong. He's, not, he's also not suggesting that the answer to that is what the early church would have called asceticism. That is where you, you deny every pursuit of money, every pursuit of, of comfort in your life, and instead choose a life of poverty. Now, some people, after meeting Jesus, feel called to that. Praise God for that. But that is not what Jesus is instructing here. He's not working with, with two extremes. Instead, Jesus is going after something much more important, and that is the heart. Jesus is also not suggesting that we earn our salvation by talking about laying up or storing up our treasure in heaven. Our salvation is something that we can do nothing to earn. It is only ever a gift for us. And what we're instead invited to do is to live life in response to that great gift. What Jesus is doing in this passage is he is not speaking against owning possessions. Rather, he is speaking against our possessions owning us. He's speaking against the, the longing and the desire for more becoming the thing that owns us and that owns our hearts. You see, Jesus has come to set us free from the worry and concern of the world. It doesn't mean that we're not concerned about things that are happening in the world. But it means that those things are not the determining factor in our lives. They're not the determining factor in our pursuits. They're not the determining factor in who we are and how we live. We are called to live as citizens of God's kingdom, finding our worth and our identity in him and allowing the way that we are then concerned about the world around us to be framed and shaped by that, that truth, that we are holy and dearly loved by God as most beautifully displayed in the giving of his son, Jesus. So Jesus is wanting instead to reorient the way that we view what we have been given, to reorient the way that we, we look at and we consider how we use what God has given us. He begins by saying, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. This would have immediately meant something to the people to whom Jesus was speaking. Because for many of them, their homes consisted of, of mud and sticks built together. These were not homes like we have that are made to withstand the elements. They were meant, meant to be simple shelter from the elements. And these were not homes that would have had, you know, a safe in the back room where you could store your treasure, where you could store your valuables. Instead, valuables were often buried in the floor or built into the wall an easy place for, for critters or for vermin to dig and to find them. 
Also an easy place for thieves to come in, to destroy a home and looking for a treasure. Jesus is saying anything that you lay up here is, is only temporary. And, and one of the things that we understand, and it's, it's easy for us to see as we look around at this world, that the trajectory of this world until Jesus returns and makes everything new is one of decay. Right? And, 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 and we live, many of us, because we care about family and we care about those who come after us, we live with this kind of attitude, well, I want to make sure that my family is taken care of. Praise God, that's God honoring for you to do that. And, and, and I want to work to lay up an inheritance for those who will follow me. Again, not wrong. But I hate to break it to you. All it takes is one, like, knuckle-headed grandson to take that inheritance of yours and make poor decisions with it before it comes to nothing. I have in my office upstairs a secretary. I realize that sounds like I have a person in my office upstairs. I do not. I could probably use a secretary, but I have a piece of furniture called a secretary. It was an antique that was in my grandmother's home. And it, it, I have so many, I know exactly where it sat in each of the homes in which she lived. And it was the place that she kept her Bible and it was the place that she kept things that were, were dear to her. It was the place that she hand wrote the letters that I still have in my possession. And my mother called me and said, hey, we, we need to, this secretary's got to go. Do you, do you want it? My grandmother had since moved to a, a retirement home, and so we were cleaning out her house, and, and I, I desperately wanted it. But I was so worried about being the one who kept this piece of furniture. I didn't want to keep it in my house with my five young children, whom I love dearly, but I felt like the safest place for me to keep it is here in the office, knowing that one day I'm probably going to have to move it out of there, and then it has to go in my home. All, all it takes is one person somewhere along the line to think, you know, this would be a great place for me to store my paintball gear or my greasy tools that I use to fix a car even though I'm not a mechanic, really, for our treasures that we store up on this earth to, to come to nothing. Our material treasure and wealth will pass away. Jesus is inviting us instead to consider, even in taking what we may have that is wealthy, that is worth something, that is valuable, and considering how might that be used to store up treasure in heaven? How might that be used to advance God's kingdom? How might that be used and given eternal significance so that lives are impacted and lives are changed as a result of that? I remember when I was younger going with that same grandmother and, and my cousins to the Mint Museum in Charlotte to see the, the Ramesses uh, exhibit that was on display. And it was rooms and rooms full of treasure and gold and these beautiful works of art that had all been placed in a tomb with this king of Egypt, none of which he took with him. And instead now was on display for, for us to marvel at. Jeff and I have had the honor of walking with a number of families as they have grieved the loss of a loved one. And, and I know that I, and, and, and Jeff, I'm sure the same as you, you've never seen a moving truck full of someone's possessions following the hearse to the burial site. Because we can't take any of that stuff with us. And yet this world and, and the culture in which we live convinces us, works so hard to convince us that more will give us meaning, that more will fill our hearts, that more will bring us joy, that more will make us happy. When oftentimes all it does is to bring more pressure 
and more pain and more worry. And yet Jesus' invitation is, hey, and maybe placed differently, those things that you've worked for and, and all that you have doesn't have to bring you pressure. Maybe it can bring you freedom and be a part of what I'm doing in this world in the process. It's important for us to consider why we fall to the temptation that the world throws at us when it comes to wealth and possession. Maybe it's in response to a way that, that we grew up. Maybe the way you grew up was so difficult that you vowed, I will not live that way when I'm older. Maybe it is in, in pursuit of a sense of security. Maybe it's out of wanting independence. Maybe it's simply the pleasure of having things. I had a relative who, who had a bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. And man, he lived into that because he had some great toys. But as I've watched him move, each time he's moved, he's had to offload more and more of these things that he once held so dear. Again, this is where that gentle and lowly heart of Jesus becomes so beautiful to us. Because maybe as we hear this, we're wrestling with, with kind of our, our own perception of the way that we view wealth, the way that we view possessions. And maybe there's something in us that's uneasy. And my hope and my prayer is that we hear from Jesus in these words an invitation to come to him and to allow him to help us sort these things out. Jesus then goes on to talk about the, the eye as the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body is healthy. Another way to translate that would be to say if your eyes are good, then the whole body is healthier. The whole body is, is full of light. And this is not talking about the quality of your eyesight. My younger son, Braden just got back from his physical last week and he said, Dad, guess what? I have 2015 vision. And I'm thinking, man, enjoy that while you can. You know, like, what does that mean? You can see at night. He's like, I don't know. It just means my vision is really good. That's not exactly what Jesus is, is speaking of here. Instead, Jesus, it's believed that this word could be translated or the root of this word could be understood two different ways, both of which work in this teaching. One is that it's a single-mindedness that you have or a single, singular focus. Are you so focused on the things of God that it transforms the way that you live your life? It transforms the quality and the health of your heart. Or is your focus so divided that you find yourselves trying to, as we'll see in a moment, serve two different masters? Because we're not meant to live under that kind of weight. The expectation that we place on people and things of this world, none of which, none of them can bear up under the weight of that expectation. And yet the invitation here is to, to serve and love and follow Jesus with a singular focus. The other way that that may be understood is, is that you are a person who is generous. That because you are so enamored and so cherish the heart of Christ and the things of God, that you in him realize all that you have been given and understand that, that any wealth on this earth does not compare to the, the riches that we are given in a relationship with Jesus and the promise of eternity. In Revelation 21, 21, we see that there's this picture of heaven and that it's paved with streets of gold. And we don't know if that's true or not or if that's John's descriptive language of, of, of 
trying to help us understand what this new heaven and this new earth will look like when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom forever. But let's imagine for a moment that the streets of heaven are literally paved with gold. This thing that we hold as so valuable here on this earth is the very thing that God said when asked, hey, what, what should we you know, lay down like for the road? I, I don't know. Gold. Let's use gold, the thing that people will travel on and the thing that automobiles will drive. I don't think there are automobiles in heaven, but the point being, this thing on earth that we hold is so valuable is the very thing that would be under our feet as we walk in relationship and connection and worship of Jesus for eternity. Conversely, when we become so concerned and live so concerned over the things that we have that we hold tightly to them, we find that it affects our entire lives. It affects our heart. It affects relationship with others. Jesus is inviting us to consider that and call attention to that. Then he goes on to say, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And we may think, well, gosh, I feel like I I serve a number of things in my life. There are a number of things to which I am committed and that vie for my time and my attention and my, my treasure. Ronnie said when he was sharing, sometimes it feels like the paycheck is already spoken for before it ever comes to your possession. But Jesus is not talking about, he's, the, the, the language here is not like having two jobs. We can serve and we can work multiple jobs. Those of you who have lived in the high country for a long time know that it's such a special place and so many people want to call this place home that, that they're willing to do whatever it takes to make a life here, often working multiple jobs. It's not employment that Jesus is talking about. The language he uses here is slave and master. A slave cannot serve two different masters. There is only one to whom you are devoted. And any attempt of us to serve both wealth and the things that this world values and God at the same time will leave us feeling the weight of feeling like we're being torn and pulled in two different directions. It leaves us frustrated not experiencing the full life that Jesus came to make possible that he promises to us in John 10.10. 10. See, our treasure lies in what we cherish. As I said at the beginning, Jesus is going after our hearts in this passage because he knows everything else in life flows out of that. When the thing that we most cherish is relationship with Jesus and what that has meant for us and then what that could mean for others who we might be willing to share that relationship with, then it reorients the way that we spend our time and our resources and the way that we use the treasure and the gifts that God has given us. Your heart is bent toward the thing that you most cherish. A good practice for us would begin each day, at the end of the day, to examine, God, what have I cherished most today? What is the thing that my heart has been bent toward today? And to know that if it's not God, if it's not the things of God, if it's not the kingdom of God, then that gentle and lowly, that accessible and inviting heart will welcome you back and allow you to rest and say, tomorrow we're gonna go again. 
Jesus wants our devotion before he wants anything else. Because once he has that, everything else in life flows from that place. I want to close with a, a video and then have just a couple of words to say that, uh, to say about the video. This is a man named Court Randall who made possible the purchase of a Young Life camp in upstate New York called Saranac. Young Life is an outreach ministry for high school students whose sole purpose is to introduce them to the life-changing power of the gospel. Take a look at this. Young Life got Saranac because my sweet wife, uh, who's now, we've been married 44 years, introduced to, to Young Life when uh, we flew out to Civil Cliff and uh, we saw for the first time a camp. Uh, and I was so impressed with how thousands of people were accepting Christ in these camps. So I uh, had a chance, I brought a company public, and uh, so they had told me for the first time in the East, they have located a camp. The kids had to go 2,000 miles to get to Colorado every summer on wickety bosses sometimes to get to camp. And so June and I prayed about it. We decided we should buy Saranac Camp and give it to Young Life, uh, which we did in 1969. I'd made a lot of money on the public offering. So I also bought a Learjet and Italian yacht. And today, the Learjet is in a scrap heap here in uh, the south. The boat is in a uh, scrap heap in Columbia. One of my greatest regrets of my life, they didn't buy three camps because of the incredible legacy of having almost 300,000 kids go to Saranac during these 43 years uh, to meet Christ and the eternal value of that instead of just having a Learjet or a yacht. So uh, I just, if I had to do it over again, I would have bought three of them. I love that line. One of my greatest regrets in life is that I didn't buy three camps. Almost 30 years after Court Randall and his wife purchased Saranac and donated it, gave it to Young Life. I had the opportunity as a college student to go uh, for what is called work week at the beginning of the summer. And, and work week is when you spend time, you go and you, you, you work, you prepare the camp for hundreds of high school students to come that summer and to hear the gospel and to experience the love of Jesus. And, and I went with my friends who are a part of the Raleigh area um, Young Life leadership and, and the area director at the time, Ray Siegler, the only job that he wanted when we got there, he said, Give us, make us the grounds crew. Let us be the, the, the crew who cleans up and who, who does the trimming and who, who takes down trees. And I'm, I'm convinced partly that the reason that he wanted us to do that was because we got to play with chainsaws and, and, and big wood chippers and things that we probably shouldn't have had our hands on. But I remember walking around the property with him. And, and there's a boardwalk that goes along the lake. And I remember walking with him and he would stop and he would say, hey, why don't we, let's try to neaten this area up. Let, let, let's clean this up and let's make this as beautiful as we can. Because I believe that at some point this summer, a high school student, a young man or a young woman is going to sit here when given their 20-minute quiet time and consider life with Jesus. And, and what if we just made this place as beautiful as possible? 
so that as kids are hearing the gospel, they're given a place to sit and to reflect and to hear that call that Jesus is making on their life and to say yes to that invitation. And so 30 years later, I was a part of preparing a space for students to respond to the gospel because of the faithfulness and the generosity of a very successful businessman. Friends, what if we stopped living with the goal being retirement? What if we stopped having such a limited view of our lives and instead said to the Lord, God, how would you like to use what you've given me so that lives beyond my life can be impacted for the gospel, for the kingdom? That's the invitation for us. It begins with your heart because everything else flows out of that. And so we invite you. How is God calling you? What does he want to do in your life? What does he want to do through your life? Amen? Amen.